Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I say, well, quite simply, if you want to understand, if your preference is to understand the American side, and you want to understand things like how remarkable was it that American, that American military managed to defeat the British military, it helps if you really understand what the British military was like. That's managing editor of the Journal of the American Revolution, Don N. Hagist discussing the British soldiers who marched to Concord, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest... Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution Managing Editor, Don N. Hagist, discussing the British soldiers who marched to Concord. One of the amazing things about not just the battle at Concord Bridge, but the American Revolution in general, is how we so often disregard the eccentricities and uniqueness of the British soldiers who fought in the war uh, in favor of uh, glamorizing or hyper-focusing on the patriots who fought against them. There's a lot of really compelling stories amongst those British ranks, uh, and you really can't have a full understanding of the American Revolution until you research these individuals as well. Our managing editor here at the Journal, Don Hagist, has made a career out of bringing these men and their stories and their careers to light. And this article is no exception. It's, a, it's amazing. So I encourage you to check it out. For now, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Don Hagist. Don Hagist, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Don, remind us of your background. Okay. Um, well, my general background is that I am an engineer. I work for a major medical device company on interesting products that integrate hardware and software, the most recent one being robotic-assisted orthopedic surgery, which is every bit as much fun as it sounds like. But when I'm not doing that, you know, to keep my mind clear, I enjoy reading and writing about people who were involved in the American Revolution, in particular the British soldiers who fought here who just don't get nearly enough love and scholarship about them. What first drew your interest into this topic? Okay, the subject of this particular article, um, if you're familiar with my work in general, you know that I like to study the lives and situations of individual British soldiers who served in America. So it's one thing to look at metadata and say, you know, most soldiers were this and that, and there were 500 men here and 2,000 there. But I like to know who the individual people were and find out things about their lives. Um, 
But to put that in good context, you still need the broader data to put the thing in, in context. For example, if I find out that a given man was promoted to become a corporal, I also want to have a sense of how likely was that? How common was it? What portion of soldiers got a promotion like that during their careers? So I look at both big data sets and then facts about individuals. Um, this particular project, I decided to look at the British soldiers who were involved in the march from Boston to Concord on the very first day of hostilities during the Revolutionary War. Um, people are generally familiar with Paul Revere riding out of Boston and saying the British are coming, although he probably actually said the regulars are out or some other phrase like that. But people don't often think about exactly who those regulars were, who were these soldiers, both as individuals and as a population. Well, I've been studying British soldiers for a long time and I have access to archival materials that tell us the names of individual soldiers and often some data about their backgrounds, where they were born, what they did for a living before they joined the army, how long their careers were, things like that. So over the winter, one of my COVID projects for this year was to look at this specific set of British soldiers, the ones who were or may have been involved in the march to Concord on April 19th and see if I could discern some interesting things about them as a group and also find some things about some of the individuals. Don, talk about the strategic importance of Concord. Oh, that's a great question. Um, now, this British force marched out of Boston. They went to Concord, but their goal wasn't to stay in Concord. It was very much a raiding party. We have to remember that at the time they marched out early in the morning on April 19th, and they actually left Boston late on the night of April 18th, there was no war going on in America. So these soldiers didn't go out to fight a war that day. They were marching to Concord because Americans had been stockpiling military stores at various places in Boston, including in the town of Concord, which is about 20 miles outside of Boston, plus or minus a little bit. Um, in particular, in Concord, as far as the British knew, were two brass cannons that Americans had stolen from the British military in Boston a few months before. And our journal, the American Revolution colleague, J.L. Bell, has written a book about this very subject, about these two cannons that were stolen out of Boston and hidden somewhere nearby. And as far as the British knew, they were in Concord, Massachusetts. These cannons were important because these were field pieces, things that um, a military force could use to have mobility on the battlefield. So these weren't the kinds of cannons that you would just install in a fortification and they sit there until somebody attacks. These were the kinds of cannons that could be used for offensive operations. Americans stole them from the British and the British wanted them back. They also wanted to destroy other military stores that were being stockpiled in Concord. So they sent out this expedition early in the morning of April 19, 1775. How many men went to Concord and what was their objective? Okay, there were two questions there. And of course, the, the objective associated with the march was to find and destroy military stores that the British were stockpiling. Um, to do this, 
the British Commander-in-Chief Thomas Gage ordered about 700 men to march out. The exact number we can't determine from available sources, but we can look and say, okay, he ordered 10 companies of light infantry and 11 companies of grenadiers to march out on this day. And we know the size of a company at full strength that was about 35 private soldiers and uh, five non-commissioned officers and a drummer and three officers. And we also know from a few records that not every company sent every single man out. They weren't all up to full strength. So we can say it was about 700 men without knowing the exact number that set out on this march. Now, the particular subset of 700, I mentioned grenadiers and light infantry, and they were carefully chosen. Um, every British regiment consisted of 10 companies of soldiers. And among those 10 companies, one company was called grenadiers and one was called light infantry. These two were the elite two companies of the regiment. So they were hand-picked soldiers serving in these specialized companies. They were only men who were highly experienced, particularly well-trained and particularly adept at being soldiers. So you didn't have any raw recruits among the grenadiers and light infantry. And they were all very good at marching and marching fairly long distances rapidly. So it was a good selection of men to do this 20 mile one day raid. They had to march out 20 miles, destroy military stores and march back to Boston all within a 24 hour period. So the men who were selected were these companies of soldiers who were particularly good at traveling long distances in a short period of time. Don, talk a bit about the nationalities of these men. Uh, they were really a mixed bag. Was this common for a British force? Uh, yes, um, absolutely I can, and absolutely yes, it was common. One of the things that a lot of historians get wrong about the American Revolution is that they look at certain aspects of British military tradition that didn't come into play until later on a later time period. And one of these things is the idea that British regiments were identified with specific British, specific locations in Great Britain. So we hear about British regiments and we say, oh, the Lincolnshire Regiment and the Cheshire Regiment and the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry. And all these flashy titles didn't go into effect until 1782. Now you probably remember that the American Revolution, the fighting began in 1775. So all these things that we call county titles had no bearing on any of these regiments that marched out in 1775. British regiments in general at this time recruited from anywhere in Great Britain they could find men, and any given British regiment was composed of men from all over the British Isles. There were a few exceptions during the course of the war, but none of those exceptions applied to the British Army in Boston in 1775. So if we looked at a sample of men from any British regiment, we'd find men from every nation that comprised Great Britain and the Kingdom of Ireland. Now, in the course of the 700 men who marched out to Concord on April 19th, I've been able to determine the nationality of 200 of them so far. And of that, I find just over 100 of them were English, about 36 of them were Scottish, 49 of them were Irish, three were Welsh, and one was American. 
Now, you may be a little surprised that there'd be an American in there, but think about it. At this time, these were British colonies. If you were a young man born in North America and you wanted to join the army, the army that you joined was the British army. So it shouldn't be any surprise that there was a smattering of Americans among these men. Um, so we have fair representation. It was a little over half English. And then of the remainder, about half were Scottish and about half were Irish. If we were to look at most British regiments at any time during the American Revolution, we'd find similar proportions. Some would have a few higher percentage of Irish and some would have a higher percentage of Scots. But usually they're going to be about half English and then about a quarter Irish and a quarter Scottish, you know, plus or minus a little bit. So this is a very typical proportionality that we see with this specific population we're looking at. Don, let's talk about who these men were. Uh, they had a varied background of skills and trades. Is it common to find that information in British sources? Well, there's a treasure trove of information on British soldiers that for some reason hardly anybody knows about and hardly anybody uses, which is really unfortunate. Um, and that is British Army pension records. Um, something that's widely overlooked is that the British Army, you know, the, the soldiers who marched out of from Boston were part of an army that was established for almost a hundred years by this time. So they had a pretty highly refined military system in terms of all the administration of it and what have you. And among the refinements that the British army had was a well-established pension system. So a soldier who served a good long time in the army stood a pretty good chance of being awarded a pension. When he was awarded a pension, certain information was kept on record, and among those, the information was when the man was born, where he was from, what trade he had practiced before he joined the army, and a few other little details. And all this information is still on record for those men who received pensions. Now, not all men received pensions, but of our sampling of about 700 men who marched out from Concord that day, just shy of 200 of them did receive pensions. Actually, I take that back. It was a little more than 200 of them received pensions. So I just went through and looked at the data that's available and compiled it all for these men. One of the things that's recorded is their trade, which sounds a little odd, but during this time period, most British soldiers enlisted somewhere between the ages of 20 and 25 years old. That, too, surprises some people because we think the Army would trend younger, but, but it doesn't. And we know the length of service because we have not only pension records, but we have muster rolls, we have other data. So we have a population of men enlisting in the Army, some in their teens, but most of them between 20 and 25 years of age, in an era when most people, if they went to school at all, they went to school only until their early teens. So what do all these guys do between the age of 12 or 13 and the age of 20 or 21 or 22 when they joined the army? Well, they went to work, of course, and some of them pursued trades that required apprenticeships. Others didn't. But one way or the other, these trades that they pursued are recorded in the pension records. And from them, we find out that 
Um, I've been able to find the trades for 188 of the soldiers who were who marched out on April 19th. And of those, we find that almost exactly half were what was listed as laborers. Laborer was simply a man who didn't have a particular trade. Then taking the other approximately half of them, we've got 21 weavers, 11 tailors, six carpenters for each of shoemakers, hosiers, framework knitters, and clothiers. There were three butchers. There were two each of blacksmiths, smiths, which some other type of metal worker, not specified. We had coopers, dyers, cord wainers, and wool combers, two of each of those. And then there was one each. There was a baker, a bleacher, a brick maker, button maker, cabinet maker, curl, uh, cutler, engraver, glover, gunsmith, husbandman, malster, mason, musician, nailer, sawyer, serge weaver, stockinger, stuff weaver, tallow chandler, toy maker, upholsterer, whip maker, whitesmith, and wool card maker. So we have a really broad selection of trades. About half the men who marched out that day had practiced some kind of trade before they joined the army. And I mentioned that I've done this kind of study for a number of other populations of soldiers, soldiers on different campaigns and in different garrisons in America. And this is absolutely typical. We find somewhere between 50 and 55% of British soldiers in America had some kind of a trade and the other 45 to 50% of them were what was categorized as laborers. What do we know about the losses sustained at Concord? Oh, the losses... On the upside, the losses were very clearly reported by the British commander-in-chief just a few days after the battle. He said that there were 73 men killed, 174 wounded, 53 missing. Now, I talked before about 700 men who marched to, marched to Concord, but another 1,500 men marched out of Boston later that day as a relief force. So once they heard in the distance, oh, there's some shooting going on at Lexington at dawn, we better send some more soldiers out just in case there's trouble. And it turned out, yeah, there really was trouble. And this 1,500-man release force, force marched out to Lexington and met the 700 men from Concord in full retreat. And, and some more fighting went on. When the British commander-in-chief reported the casualties, they're delineated, but not so clearly that we can be absolutely sure exactly how many men of the force of 700 that marched to Concord became casualties. Some of the casualties reported were in the relief force, and for reasons I won't get into here, we can't distinguish um, um, the numbers really clearly. So when we look at about close to 2,000 men who were involved that day in some way or another. We had 73 killed, 174 wounded, and 53 missing. Some of those missing became prisoners of war. Some of them did trickle in within the next few days. I know for sure from Army muster rolls that 20 grenadiers and light infantrymen, the men who marched all the way to Concord and started to come back, were killed on that day. So the force of 700, I know for sure that at least 20 of them died. And I don't know how many of those were wounded. Don, talk about some of these men which stood out to you. You list a number of them in your article. Who do you find the most compelling? Oh, well, that's a great question. And in the article, I did, in fact, include half a dozen men who I found interesting and compelling. And that's 
only a portion of the ones that I know about that I find interesting and compelling. You know, I tried to keep the article to a certain size limit. So there's, there's actually some men who I don't talk about in the article who I think are even more interesting than the ones that I talk about in the article. But I'll, I'll give you a few little examples right here, just some of the ones who are mentioned in the article to start us off, and then we'll, we'll see if we want to go on the tangent of other ones after that. Um, we have a soldier in the 4th Regiment of Foot who was named John Smith. Well, with a name like that, you'd think he'd be hard to trace, but because he got a pension and because the record keeping was fairly good, I am able to follow his career. And I found that he was born in 1731 in Norfolk, England. So that means that in 1775, he was 44 years old. He was uh, in the 4th Regiment's Grenadier Company on April 19th. So this gives you an idea right away of some of the kind of men. They weren't all young, new soldiers. This guy was 44 years old, starting on his 20-mile march that morning. And uh, he had been a British soldier since 1754. So he was a veteran of the French and Indian War. And in fact, he had been wounded in the French and Indian War when the British captured the island of Martinique in 1762. So he had been wounded in the leg, but not so severely that he couldn't soldier on. And now, uh, 13 years later, he's marching out to Concord with the British column. And he got wounded that day through his thigh. So he gets another leg wound. But British soldiers, all of these men were career soldiers. This is another thing that often gets poorly stated or outright incorrectly stated in the literature. Um, the British regular army was an established army. When Paul Revere said the regulars were out, he was referring to soldiers who were professional full-time soldiers. All of these men who marched out on April 19th were exactly that, full-time career soldiers. John Smith was one of them. He had joined the army in 1754. He got wounded in Martinique. He got wounded again on April 19th, 1775. But he continued as a soldier in the British Army until September of 1788. And then he got a pension. He had been in the Army for 31 years. And he was uh, doing the math in my head. He was 57 years old when he was finally discharged from the Army. Now, some people get surprised when they hear numbers like that. And the challenge that I have when I want to talk about British soldiers with with interesting careers, it's not finding a guy with a career like this, it's deciding which one I want to talk about, because this is a very typical career for a British soldier. The British soldiers who served in the American Revolution often had careers of over 30 years in the army, and they often served in two, three, sometimes four different wars. So the American Revolution wasn't the be-all, end-all of their career for many of these men at all. They soldiered on, and they soldiered on, and they soldiered on. Let me find another example here. We have John Mosley. He was born in 1744 in Leicester in England. So he's 31 years old on the morning of Lexington and Concord. Um, he joined the Army in 1764 at the age of 20. Pretty typical there. And he was in the Light Infantry Company of the 5th Regiment of Foot. From that morning, he was wounded in his left arm. And now you'd think that would really hurt getting a musket ball in your left arm, and it probably did. 
but he recovered from the wound enough that he fought just two months later at the Battle of Bunker Hill. And he was wounded again there, this time in the left shoulder. So now he was wounded in his left arm, and then he was wounded two months later in the left shoulder. But once again, he recovered from this wound. He was a professional soldier. He stayed in the army. He fought at the Battle of Brandywine in September 1777, and he was wounded again in the right knee at this battle. So now he's gotten three wounds in two years in three major battles. Um, but he continued to serve until June of 1784. So he served for the rest of the American Revolution and wasn't discharged from the army until a year later when he got on the pension rolls. Again, nothing unusual at all about these kinds of careers. I'll bring up one more before I let you work a word in edgewise here, Brady. Um, James Renison is a real favorite of mine because he exemplifies the kind of careers soldiers had. He was born in the town of Kendall in County Westmoreland, which no longer is a British county, but it's up in the northeast of England. Um, I'm sorry, northwest of England, rather. He joined the army at the age of 16, which is unusually young, but not unprecedentedly young. He had been a weaver for a time before joining the army. So another man who had a trade before he joined. Um, and by April 19, 1775, he joined the army in 1759. On April 19, 1775, he was in the 59th Regiment of Foot's Light Infantry Company, and he was wounded in the thigh. So here's another guy who has been in the army quite a long time already, goes into battle, gets wounded, but he nonetheless marched up a bunker hill just two months later, just like some of his comrades. So wounded in battle, but two months later, back in battle again. He got through the Battle of Bunker Hill unscathed, and then um, as the war moved on toward the end of 1775, he got some good news. His regiment had been in America since the 1760s. And remember, these were British colonies, so it wasn't unusual to have British regiments stationed in America before any war broke out. Many of the British soldiers didn't come here to fight the war. They were here already when the war started. Renison was one of them. He had been wounded on April 19th. And then in December of 1775, his regiment gets sent home to England. So, huh, lucky him. He doesn't have to stay in this war anymore. But he wasn't out of war altogether. During the course of the American Revolution, France and Spain declared war on Great Britain. And Spain, in particular, wanted the British-held Gibraltar. So they laid siege to Gibraltar, and James Renison, this veteran of the fighting on April 19th in America, he had gone back to England, and then his regiment gets sent to Gibraltar. And Gibraltar was besieged by the Spanish for four years, one of the longest sieges in British military history. And this guy, this veteran of the Battle at Lexington and Concord, was there the whole time. So again, we think of it, this war in America as being this huge thing. Well, here's a guy, it's like, sure, I fought one day in America and then I go back and I go to Gibraltar and I'm fighting for four years straight. Well, that siege was listed in 1782. The war ended in 1783. James Renison finally was discharged from the army in 1788 after serving 29 years. And then he did what hundreds 
upon hundreds of British soldiers who fought in the American Revolution did. He was discharged from the army after 29 years, and he turned around and he re-enlisted. Because again, professional career soldiers, what else is a guy going to do? He's been a soldier all his life. He continues being a soldier. He uh, served for three more years. He was discharged again in 1791, but career soldier. What does he do? He enlisted again, and he served for another six years in the army. He got discharged again. This time, what does he do? He joins another military organization, a thing called an invalid corps, which is for soldiers who are not fit enough to do things like the 20-mile march from Boston to Concord and back again, but they are fit enough to do things like garrison fortifications and things. He stayed in this veteran battalion until 1802. So now he was discharged from the army again at the age of 59 after spending just over 40 years in the army. And here again, nothing unusual about this man's career. Hundreds of British soldiers had careers like this. So it's just wonderful to see, you know, we look at the American Revolution as being this very singular and extremely important event. And, and it was for sure, but for some of the soldiers who fought him on the British side, it was just one more little thing in a very big, long military career. And I could go on all day and all night like this, because this is just a little sampling. And I told you, I found data like this on 200 of the soldiers who marched out on April 19th. So we're just getting started, man. Don, why do you believe these men have remained largely faceless in our broader understanding of this event? I think there's a number of reasons, and it's hard for me to be sure. When I'm studying the soldiers themselves and people ask me, why did somebody do something? I always say, I don't like to say why unless somebody writes down why they did it. And when I'm assessing why other scholars and other writers do what they do. I kind of feel the same way. I don't like to second guess them, but I think there are several reasons. One reason is a lot of people just never bothered to look for this kind of data. You know, I think it doesn't occur to people that it's even out there, so they don't bother to try to find it. Um, until recently, it, and let me rephrase that, recently it's gotten a lot easier to find this sort of data. When I started doing this type of research, I had to go to the British National Archives in person and hand copy material from these documents. Now a lot of them are accessible online. So it's easier to find, but nonetheless, the way the material is cataloged can still make it challenging to get at it. You can't simply go to the British National Archives catalog and say, show me the men who marched out on April 19th. You know, so it takes a lot of work just to sift through and find the specific information among all that's there. Um, I think we have a lot of what I will call ethnocentrism isn't quite the right word. Nationalism isn't quite the right word, but you know, most people writing most of the stuff about this war are Americans and they, they tend to have a lot of rah-rah in, in their writing and a lot of, um, nationalism isn't the right word here, but you know what I'm getting at. They think, well, I want to tell people all about the American soldiers and the American heroes and this and that. And the British show, they were just 
Some writers will be more arrogant and say they were the enemy or the bad guys. Others, I think, just don't really care to find out who they actually were, which is unfortunate because we have a lot of these really remarkable and really interesting stories about soldiers who had great careers, but because they happen to be on the British side, there just doesn't seem to be the same level of interest in finding out about them. And indeed, we can understand the American side of the war better by understanding the British side, you know, understanding how many casualties were there, how many of those men who were, we read the official casualty report written by the British, and it says how many men were wounded, but we don't think about, well, how many of those men recovered from their wounds and lived to fight another day compared to how many were permanently out of action. This kind of thing matters quite a lot if you want to get a real detailed understanding of how effective the American military was in fighting the British. So there's a lot of reasons to seek the information. And I think it just hasn't really occurred to people to bother to do it. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, there's a number of ways I hope that it helps people understand the era better. One of the most important ways, and I I repeat this often when people say, why do you study the British side? I say, well, quite simply, if you want to understand, if, if your preference is to understand the American side and you want to understand things like how remarkable was it that American, that American military managed to defeat the British military, it helps if you really understand what the British military was like, you know, understanding the difference between whether these were poorly trained conscripted soldiers or well-trained professional soldiers. By the way, they were all well-trained professional soldiers. There were no conscripts in the British Army at this time. That's another story. But, um, you know, if, if we want to understand anything about the military aspects of the war, it helps to have a really detailed understanding of what the military forces were like in terms of improving our understanding of the American Revolution. As I've mentioned, there's a lot of scholarship that doesn't study the British side very much at all and makes a lot of blanket assumptions that when we look in a little more depth, they simply turn out not to be true. When we look at more detail about the remarkable career some of these soldiers had, it gives us a better respect for not only who the British Army was, but how remarkable a thing it was that the American Army managed ultimately to come off victorious in the war, you start to recognize that hmm, maybe it had more to do with just who the soldiers were and how well the soldiers fought that made the difference in this war. Don Hagist, thanks again. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.